0: Well, good morning, everyone. Um, as you can probably see, I am in a different place uh, and you might recognize this cause I'm at home. Um, I'm not feeling very well today. Um, I woke up this morning with a bit of a scratchy throat um, and just, you know, um, not feeling very well. So I thought I'd better stay away this morning, but thanks to God and the wonder of technology, I'm able to be here with you so I'm really glad to be able to do that this morning. Um, So as we come to today's passage um, Genesis 3, thanks so much for reading that Charmaine. Um, it was a long chapter to read um, but I'm also deeply aware that there's an incredible amount of ground to cover um, in this passage and I'm just not going to be able to cover it all Um, but I would commend you to keep reflecting on it um, by yourselves as you sit over lunch, um, perhaps with friends or family. Um, just mull over this passage um, and all that God is trying to say to us in this. Um, I'm always surprised every time I come back to it that there's more. <laughs> like, surely I got all the things already from this from this passage. And I just, I haven't. I haven't gotten to the depths of all that God has to say to us here. Um, But if you have your Bibles or if you need to look on a device to see a Bible, um, please do so and open at Genesis 3. Um, Now, just a quick recap. We've had this account, right? Of how God has created the whole universe from nothing by the power of his word, right? He has prepared it for life to bring order out of chaos. Um, And he has created humans, male and female, made in his image, um, and he has given them the task of ruling over all living things. And after all the work of creation, God stops. He ceases. And everything that God has created is good. And then as we move through Genesis 2, the focus changes from this wide angle kind of whole universe view it zooms in to show us something that God did while he was creating now why would why would it zoom in evidently because something very significant is happening here the bible as long as it is does not waste words so there aren't random details you know he's not it's not like they're trying to pad out an essay and they're like oh let's just shove this bit in right so this is important The view zooms in on this particular place, right, a garden um, that God plants within this world that he has created, the Garden of Eden. And there is something really special about this place. This is where life originates. Those rivers that you see there, they are the rivers that the known world find their source in the river that flows out of Eden, right? Um, These waters that God has placed firm boundaries over take life wherever it is that they flow. They carry that life throughout the world. Um, And from now on, God's people are marked as those who find water in the desert, If you go and flip through the the, the pages of Genesis and even Exodus and beyond, you'll find springs and wells that belong to the people that God chooses in desert places. And in this garden, this incredibly special place, God forms Adam from the dirt of the ground and water, and God breathes life into him. And in this garden, God creates Eve Formed from the side of Adam, one who is his match, his counterpart, with strengths that he does not have, one who is like him and yet not like him in incredibly significant ways. And also in this garden, Adam works, he looks after it. He and his wife in perfect relationship in fullness of life with God with each other they know their place in the world they have meaningful work they have everything that they need this garden is the temple of God it is sacred space where God and humans meet and Adam and Eve enjoy direct communion and communication with God in this place And that is why it is paradise. And so you come to the end of Genesis 2, and there is this picture of perfection and life that the rest of the story of the Bible and the story of God's people is trying to get back to. Now, our chapter this morning answers the question, why isn't it like that anymore? Where did it all go wrong? How did it all go wrong? Now remember that Adam and Eve weren't kind of in this garden lying on a cloud playing harps, right? God gave them responsibilities. He gave them tasks. Now God had given the task to both animals and humans to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth, right? But only humans were given the responsibility to rule over the animals and to cultivate, to to tend to, to care for the garden to be God's ruling agents on the earth. And within this task that God has given them, there is great scope for learning, for discovery, for creativity. God plants a garden in just one part of the whole of of, of his created world. And he gives humans the task, as they are fruitful and multiply, to cultivate and extend the garden, to extend the temple of God over the whole earth and they are given a freedom to do this with just one prohibition just one thing that God said don't do this out of all the trees that are in the garden and there's an abundance of trees in the garden there is one in the midst of all of those that you are not to eat from because on the day that you eat from that tree you will die God says Now, all Adam and Eve have known up to this point is peace and joy and love, perfection, the perfection of the life-giving presence of God. But eating from that tree will bring an end to all of that. It will bring death. Now, in this chapter, Adam and Eve will make a choice about how they want to rule and cultivate the world, about how they want to live Ultimately, this is about whether or how they will choose to gain wisdom, right? Um, whether they will wait on God for wisdom and for knowledge, or whether they will turn somewhere else, whether they will try to make their own way and find out, find their own ways of doing things. And it will have ramifications over the rest of human history and over the state of all humanity and this universe. So they will be faced with three questions. What has God said? Do you trust the God who said it? And will you live what that God has said? So what has God said? So into into this garden paradise, the snake, an agent of Satan, enters. And he begins with a questioning half-truth. Um, our English translations make this seem a bit more subtle than it is. But when you look at it in the original language, which, um, as the commentators tell me, the snake is actually emphati- like em- emphasising the negative, the, the not, um, in his first word. He makes God sound harsh, unreasonable, even uncaring. And it's actually a ridiculous overstatement because God had created an abundance of trees for them to eat from, um, and only one tree from which he told them not to eat. In that incredible abundance, only one was barred. Now, Eve does catch this, right? She corrects the snake in what he says. But then she adds something to God's command. We aren't told exactly why, she added, that God had told them not to touch it, touch the fruit whether it was an additional safeguard that they thought was a good idea to put in place or whether they remembered it wrongly, whether when Adam told Eve he added this thing in, we don't know. But it does reveal that there is a gap in knowledge, even if it is small at this point. Do you know what God has said? Do you know it well enough to identify and correct even partial truths? Now, as God's people, I think we often fall short in this because, as I said a couple of weeks ago, studying the Bible is study. You need to read it, first of all, and understand it. It's not instinctive. Um, Now, many of us, I think, who have been know christians for a while and do read our bibles you probably have your favorite parts that you feel like you can understand better and relate to more but maybe there are other parts you avoid and maybe you've gotten to the point even where you've never read some of those other parts um so you might decide you know you might have decided to just mainly stick in the new testament or or just look at the gospels maybe you just really like the psalms and that's where you stay but you find a lot of the rest of it just like confusing Now, the Bible, because of the the time period in which the Bible was written, it does make sense that it's not immediately understandable to us in our current day. It's not like picking up the latest book that's on the shelf, whatever's been written in the last couple of years. And you shouldn't expect to be able to understand everything all at once. And you shouldn't expect that your understanding can't or won't change and deepen as you study more. You see, within the Bible, as as it has been written to us, there are different cultures to understand, different types of writing that we need to understand how to read. There are even different languages that have different nuances. I mean, you know, right, when you say something in Chinese and you translate it into English, often you lose something when you translate it, yeah? Each language has its own way of expressing things and its own kind of... um, nuances that sit underneath the text that a native speaker understands but somebody outside of that doesn't understand immediately or instinctively but despite all of this the bible is this incredible book because children new christians can understand it and also people who have been reading and studying it all their lives can keep learning new things and that's because it isn't an ordinary book it's not ordinary because it is the one that God has written to give to his people. I think sometimes we're a bit fuzzy about what's in the Bible. But, you know, from time to time, we use it like it, like a manual kind of. Like we just want a quick answer to something or a comforting word or something like that. So, like, we flip through or we Google to find it. Instant gratification. Grab and go. Tell me what to do. Um, you know, let me flip to the index to find what I need. But this is not what it means to know God's word. It's not like, you know, fastest finger first on the buzzer, right? And it's not about knowing the right phrase to Google. Knowing God's word goes beyond simply knowing the right answer. It's it's actually caught up in the nuance of what it means to know from a he, in a Hebrew perspective, mm-hmm. When you know something or someone, it means you have experiences with them. There's a deep intimacy, there's a relationship. And that means that when we take the time to grow deeper understanding of God's word, we search out the tools and the information that that will help us. And we ask the Holy Spirit to help our hearts to understand what God is, is telling us in his word. We seek out other Christians who will guide us. Now, some of you listening right now, maybe you, you don't have a clear idea of what it means to be a Christian. And maybe you're not really very comfortable reading your Bible. Maybe you've been coming to church for a while. Maybe you've only been coming for a short time. But regardless of how long it's been, you don't really know what it's all about. Can I encourage you? Um, we are planning to run um, Alpha as a foundations course for us. Um, you know, it, it, a little bit later in the year. And I want to encourage you to sign up for it, to commit to it so that you can find out what it is that, you know, you, why, why is it that I'm coming to church um, every week? Or maybe, you know, you don't come every week, but from time to time, why is it that people keep asking me to come? Why is this an important thing? Why is it that belonging to God and God's people is such a significant thing in life? Don't just reject something that you don't understand. Learn what it's about. Know what it is before you make that call about whether this is really the way that God um, wants you to live or whether it's the way that you want to live, that you want to choose between, okay? So do you know what God has said? Study his word. Now, Christians, Christianity, it tends to get a pretty negative rap, right, in the media and, you know, perhaps in your schools and your workplaces and amongst some of your friends. And I would say that a lot of this is because it's the word of the snake that has been made popular. The word of God has been twisted and deformed and made into a lie that is only sprinkled with truth if there is any truth in it at all so as christians as people who are following god we need to be clear about what god has said not just to be able to quote bible verses at people but to open them to open up for them the heart of god and to give them a true understanding of what not only what god has said but who God is. Because you see, the second questioning of the snake leads us to ask this question, do you trust the God who said? Now, it may appear that Eve fended off the first attack of the snake, but the second attack actually shows how fragile her position was. See, because the snake now just goes directly for the jugular, right? He, he directly contradicts what God has said. He doesn't only contradict it, he overlays it with a doubt, to a, an invitation to doubt the motivation of God. Because the snake ascribes to God a selfish motive for not allowing that fruit to be eaten. Now, understood in one way, The snake is right, because if you skip to the end of the chapter, Adam and Eve are still breathing after they eat the fruit. They are still alive, and they do also gain a knowledge, and they are exposed for the first time to what bad or evil is, and in this way, they do resemble God. But you see, what the snake is promising for them, what he tempts them with, that desire to be like God. Is already given to humans. Humans were already made in the image of God. He is promising them something that God has already given them. Because even Satan, powerful though he is, can only give things, promise things to us that God has already created, even if those things are twisted and deformed. But look at what the subtext of the words are that he uses. You see that God is withholding something good from you, that God doesn't want to share his godness with you. God is keeping you away from something that will really benefit you. You need this thing. Now, what did what did Adam and Eve know of God up until now? From God to this point, they had They had known peace. They had known abundance. They had known perfection. Everything that they needed was provided by him and much more. They had only received good things from him. There was no reason to doubt the character of God, that he would withhold something that he knew was for their good. And yet they did. You see, this temptation, it's not about eating fruit. I mean, it is because that's the resulting action, but sometimes we can get caught up in wondering like, well, what was the big deal about the fruit anyway? Like, was there something special or magical about it? But we miss the point when we, when we look at it that way. This temptation is about whether they trust God's word and God's character. You see, if you fast forward to the life of Jesus, You know, you can look at this particularly in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. You see Jesus being tempted by Satan. And he gets tempted to turn um, stones into bread and jump from a a high rooftop of the temple and take him to like the highest point in, in the world. And, you know, Satan says to him, I'll give you all of this. But Jesus knows that it's not about the thing itself that is on offer. That's why he doesn't bother arguing with him about whether that action is good or bad. Jesus knows that this is ultimately about trusting God, trusting God in his timing, in his faithfulness, in his love, in his care, in his protection, trusting God in all circumstances, trusting God that he has perfect timing, Trusting God that when he says he will do something, it will be done. Trusting God in everything. So you see, Adam and Eve may not have been able to argue with the snake. The first verse of this chapter tells us that the snake is crafty, cunning, um, shrewd, your, your version might say. He's smart, all right? He's got a particular way of doing things that means that he knows how to get what he wants, but even if they couldn't argue with the snake they showed in this that they didn't trust God they didn't need to argue with the snake they just needed to trust that what God said was the right thing that what God said was good and the very fact that they would entertain the snake's contradiction of what God had said which they had actually just repeated for him, reveals this lack of trust. They didn't forget what God had said. They didn't trust the person who said it. So you see, knowing what God has said is important. It's it's vital. But the purpose, the outcome of knowing God's word is knowing God himself. Otherwise, it's of limited value how much stuff you know. So I'm not saying that to, to negate the first point. But what I am saying is that these two things need to grow together. So there may be times when you feel dry and stagnant, um, right, in your in your growth, the growth of your relationship with God. But that doesn't mean that you should stop reading his word and trying to build your understanding of what he has said. You know, maybe maybe this is a, a picture, a way you can picture it that. Your relationship with God is is like a vine, and vines need the support of a trellis to grow, right, A, a structure so it can grow on it. And perhaps you can picture that God's word is like that trellis. They need each other. The plant's growth is supported by the structure, which you need to keep building up if you want that plant to keep growing. But maybe you've tended to think of growing your relationship with God as an individual thing. And to a certain extent, to a large extent even, it is, because only you can have your relationship with God. You can't go through somebody else. But it is absolutely vital for us to learn and to grow together. Right? The reason that Eve was created was because it was not good for Adam to be alone. And that's not only in relation to marriage. That's in relation to community for all of us. It's not good for any of us to be alone. You see, what we see here is that Adam is right there with Eve as she is speaking to the snake. He is there, but he is completely passive until he eats the fruit. Mm -hmm. Now imagine another scenario, right? Imagine Adam who had heard God's words and actually spoke into this situation and exposed the lies of the snake. Imagine an Adam who encouraged Eve away from her line of thinking and moved her away from the forbidden tree and moved her towards God, towards trusting him, towards understanding him, towards greater relationship with him. That is a picture of the way that we can and should remind and encourage each other of God's truths, to encourage each other to move closer to God. It's a picture of a discipleship community. And it's not just about being in the area, right? Being in the general vicinity and kind of hearing about the things that go on. It's about taking steps to speak the truth in love to each other. Because you see, in one sense, Adam was super supportive. Yeah. He didn't contradict Eve. He allowed her to do what she felt was right. And then he joined her in that action. You know, that's that's great how wonderful how very nurturing i feel that that somebody would join me in this action and that's actually something that's pretty close to what passes for love in our society now don't contradict me just support me but it isn't loving it's not actually loving because the loving action of a follower of jesus is not to passively observe while somebody makes moves away from God It's to lovingly speak the truth and help them to move towards God and not away from him so I wonder do you know God well enough to trust him do you have people around you who will encourage you towards knowing God more deeply do you encourage others in that way This is not something that is easy to do. So I'm I'm not saying it as though you can just kind of go out and it happens instantly. In a similar way to how understanding God's word is not an instant gratification thing, neither is forming the sorts of discipleship relationships that we need to grow and thrive. It's not easy. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes a lot of energy. But it is the sort of life that god calls us to okay so the first words of the snake are bold and they twist god's words and the second words of the snake speak directly against both god's word and the character of god and actually as as one of the animals that god had created the snake was included in the the you know all the animals that god had given the humans to rule over So what will they do? Will they listen to God's words and be directed by God? Or will they listen to the words of the snake, one of the animals who actually they were supposed to rule over? And now we come to the crunch time. Will you live what God has said? What does the woman do? She sees, she makes a judgment, she takes. The pattern continues as we move through Genesis, actually, whenever the people of God sin, that they see, they judge, they take. Do you know, so far, in the first two chapters of the Bible, the only person in the Bible who has seen and made a judgment is God. The last time we saw it was in Genesis 131, that God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. So look, in order to be in a position where you do an act of sin, you have already taken the place of God in your heart. You have already decided that your knowledge and your judgment are more trustworthy than God's. She sees what is good in what God has said is forbidden. And instead of ruling over the snake, she is ruled by the snake. And she chooses not to live what God has said. And Adam, as I said, who has been with her the whole time, who has not said or done anything to the contrary, also eats the fruit, showing by his actions his agreement with this decision. Now, expectation here does not meet reality instead of whatever they imagined to be this wonderful and more godlike experience they they come to know shame and broken relationship and fear that beautiful picture that that's the snake tempted them with was a lie it was food that doesn't satisfy that turns to ash in your mouth it was water that doesn't quench thirst instead it burns Not only was it not as good as they thought, it was much worse than they could have imagined. And now they knew why God had said. And maybe now they understood why it was good. When they chose not to live what God had said, everything that God had given for them to do was cursed. They had been told to rule the animals, but now the snake would fight them. They had been told to marry, to form families, to be fruitful and multiply. But now everything associated with with having children and growing a family, so not just the act of childbirth itself, which I'm not saying is not painful, but not only that, but the whole thing associated with growing families, of of having children and raising them, of living with a partner as husband and wife, all of that would be scarred and difficult and painful. They had been told to cultivate and care for the land, and now it would fight back against them producing thorns and thistles. Adam and Eve had been offered full and abundant eternal life and they were cut off from it to return to the dust from which they were formed, back to dust. Do you know what dust doesn't have in it? It doesn't have any water in it. The water of life, gone. This is a picture of dead life. Adam and Eve are still breathing Their hearts are still beating, but the life has gone out of life. This is life without God. And it isn't nothing. It isn't worthless. But there is an emptiness. There's a a futility, a fruitless hustle, right? There's a lack of something that humanity has tried to fill up unsuccessfully since. Because the highest achievements don't satisfy and the best relationships come to an end. So how do we get back to the garden? How do we get back to that paradise with God? Is it by living what God has said? Is is that our way back in? But we cannot. The story, this story, is the one that is repeated over and over and over again in the pages of the Bible. That humans even the ones who seem to hold out the most hope they 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 may even sometimes and maybe a lot of the time choose to live god's way but they still they still fail they still choose again and again not to live what god has said but god is kind and gracious and faithful. And even in this chapter, where Adam and Eve have essentially thrown God's love and kindness back in his face, there is hope and there is grace. You see, Adam and Eve, they they sin, right? They run and they hide and they cover themselves with fig leaves. They run back into those trees trying to get away from God. And by rights, it seems they should already be dead. And certainly they don't deserve any sort of positive attention from God, but God comes into the garden. As it did, he did, it seemed, around that time each day. Now, our English translations say something like the cool of the day. In Hebrew, the word that is used there is ruach, the wind, the breath of God, the spirit of God. It's just two pages back that the spirit of God had hovered over the chaos waters, ready to bring order and life. And here, that same spirit of God enters the garden, seeking out the man and the woman who broke God's heart and whose lives and relationships have become broken and chaotic. That spirit of God comes ready to bring order and life. Now God seeks them out deliberately. He knows exactly what happened. He knows the thoughts even of their hearts, but he initiates contact. It's a sign that the relationship is not broken beyond repair, certainly not from God's point of view. And even as Adam and Eve blame God and blame each other, God begins his plan of reconciliation. Genesis 3.15 points us forward a prophecy about the one who would come and finally do what Adam and Eve failed to do, to rule and subdue the snake, Satan, to kill him. Now, they didn't fully understand who was to come, that it would actually be God himself born as the man Jesus the son of god who would not succumb to to temptation and defeat satan once and for all dying where dying on a tree so that the way to life could once again be opened you see in the last verses of this chapter god banishes them from the garden right it's it's seen, it's like a horrible thing it's like it's cut off He banishes them from the Garden of Eden, from the source of life, from the presence of God. He does that because he doesn't want to live forever estranged from them, separated from them. He blocks the way back to the tree of life, the tree which represents the presence of God. Humans will not be able to enter into God's presence in the same way again. But that's, this is the thing, the way, the way is not lost. It is just blocked, guarded, until the one, Jesus, comes to open the way again. And at the death of Jesus, when the temple curtain was ripped into from top to bottom that was God ripping that temple, that, that curtain into the curtain that separated humans from the presence of God. That that was that was God saying, you don't need to fear to enter my presence again because the way has been opened for you in the death of Jesus. Now have a look at this with me. Have a look in this chapter. And try and find the verses where God is not mentioned or where God is not speaking. There are only two verses where that happens, by the way that I look at it verses six and seven. And verses six and seven are when Adam and Eve took the place of God in their own eyes and ate from the tree and then ran and hid. And you'll see that this is another pattern that you'll see through the Old Testament that where there is no mention of God, you'll find this is where people are doing what is right in their own eyes. Now look at where God is present. He is present everywhere else, right? Everywhere else. Even as the snake speaks his temptation, he speaks of God. Things are really messed up in this world, right? Like... And there are some of you watching this now who feel like things are really messed up in your own life. And this is the product over many generations of people who were supposed to rule and subdue the world under God with God's wisdom and God's love, but have chosen to rule and subdue the world by doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. There are significant cascading, compounding consequences for all of that but God is all through the story. It's not all good news. This chapter is full of bad news, but there is ultimate hope because God is still working in the world and through his people. You know, Adam and Eve tried to patch together fig leaf clothes to cover their nakedness and their shame, but God makes proper clothes for them. It is the same language as in the creation account right? The the work of creation that that is used. Now, God had stopped working on the seventh day because creation was complete. And now, as he makes these clothes, he starts working again for our good, for our restoration, for our reconciliation with him. Now, even though the full plan for reconciliation and renewal was a long way off, and even for us, you know, we, we have... Um, Jesus has come, he has died on the cross, he has risen again and is seated in the heavens with God, but we still wait for the day when all things will be fully and finally renewed, restored. But even in the time of waiting, God provides. Now, these clothes are not the white robes that God says he will give us when we reach perfection, right, When, when he returns again but they are a recovering fit for this time. They're a picture of God's grace and provision, even in the midst of sin and death and of people who are sinning and turning away from God and trying and failing and doing all sorts of the wrong things all the time. God's grace and provision is still in the story. He is still with us. So, look, this morning, guys, this Genesis chapter 3 is is incredibly rich, right? But if you've previously read this as though it means that there's no hope for the world, read it again and, and understand how full of hope this is that there is nothing that is beyond the repair of God, that there is nothing, there is no one beyond his reach, that he is the one who comes to the people who have just disobeyed him, who have just run away and hid from him, who have done everything to get away. He comes to them ready to restore, to renew to reconcile. It happens on a cosmic level, his plan for all of creation. And it happens for each of us in our lives, in the really bad decisions that we make, in the ways that we have been hurt, in the ways that we hurt others. In the ways that we think, what is going on? I don't understand what is happening here. How could this possibly be what God has planned? And yet, it is. Nothing has come out of his plan. There's no thread that you can pull on that says, "Well, sorry, it's all over now. There isn't one. So come to God. Immersed yourself in what he has said. Deepen your understanding of who he is and live in the sure and certain hope that he has promised. Amen.